your Bibles, we are continuing our study in the seven letters for the seven churches. We come to the fourth in our series, the Church of Thyatira. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Dick Edwards has got Bibles in his hand, so you can follow along with us. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, this morning. All right, let's read the words of Jesus. Starting in verse 18, we read, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I perceive things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I'll put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning to be in your word. And Lord, as you tell us, Lord, in your word, uh, Lord, that we need to uh, hear what the Spirit says to your church this morning. We want to open our hearts, open our ears to receive all from you this morning, Lord. So help us to cast aside any distractions, things that we've gone through this past week, Lord, and just focus our hearts in on you this morning as we look to your word. We thank you for this time. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us this service or will join us next service that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, they're not born again, we pray that you'd especially touch their heart today. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, seeing how it is Valentine's Day today, I'm reminded of a 1953 Dean Martin classic love song called Amore. Amore is Italian for love, and you're familiar with it, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie at Samore. You got it. Okay, well, I found a few adaptions to the uh, opening line. When an eel bites your hand and that's not what you plan, that's Amore. Get it? More eel. When a Japanese knight uses a sword in a fight, that's Samori. Samori? When our habits are strange and our customs deranged, that's amores. Mores, that's for the mores, okay. This is the best one. When your horse munches straw and the bells total four, that's amore. I thought they were good, all right? Don't use that second service. Today is Valentine's Day. Valentine's is a day of love. It's a day of remembering our vows that we made, you know, for each other. Or perhaps you're pursuing a member of the opposite sex and you bring them candy and flowers. And But I found some interesting facts about Valentine's Day. 
The celebrating of Valentine's Day ranks number one in the United States as far as chocolate candy sales go. Annual spending for 2014 for the holiday was more than $13 billion. U.S. consumers spend an average of around $116 on gifts and merchandise. Teachers receive the most Valentine cards, followed by children, mothers, wives, and then sweethearts. Children ages 6 to 10 exchange more than 650 million cards with teachers, classmates, and family members. Additionally, 196 million roses are produced to celebrate the holiday. Now, I'm all for that, for, for love and celebrating love and all that, but you may be surprised how this holiday got started. It has something to do with our text this morning. In 313 A.D., the Roman Emperor Constantine ended Roman's persecution of, of Christians. We looked at that. In 380 A.D., Christianity became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, once the Christians, uh, I mean, once the non-Christians, the pagans adopted uh, Christianity as a religion, they didn't want to totally abandon their old pagan traditions and practices that they held on even after their so-called conversion. One of these traditions was brought into the church was the fertility celebration known as Lupercalia, which eventually became known as the Valentine's holiday. Lupercalia was a pagan holiday in which they would sacrifice a goat and a dog and then whip the women with the hides of the animals. <laughs> Lovely way to celebrate Valentine's Day. They believed it would make the woman fertile. Uh, then there was a lottery in which the young man drew the names of the woman in a jar and they would be together for the whole time of the celebration between February 13th and February 15th. Now, according to Edward Gibbons in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he states, after the conversion of the imperial city Rome, the Christians still continued in the month of February the annual celebration of Lupercalia and was still celebrated under the reign of Anthemius. A Christianized form of the festival was officially adopted by the Catholic Church at the time to honor the man, a man the Catholic Church calls Saint Valentine. And then in 496 A.D., Pope Galatius, uh, named February 14th in honor of St. Valentine as a patron saint of lovers. So many holidays that uh, we celebrate, they've actually orig- originated from pagan practices adapted to Christian practices. Well, in our study this morning, we're looking at a church that has taken these pagan practices way too far, but we now come to the Church of Thyatira, or the Corrupted Church. Now, you're probably tired of me saying this, but I'll repeat it again. As we look at these seven letters for the seven churches, there are four ways to take them in. Number one, we take them in historically. These words were actually delivered to seven actual churches at the time that, that John wrote this down, Jesus giving them to, the, to be delivered to these seven churches. Number two, they're pro- applied prophetically. We have an overview of the history of the Christian church from the first church beginning at Pentecost all the way to the return of the Lord. Number three, we can look at them applied personally to our lives. Uh, these are the words from Jesus to each one of us, telling us how we want to live. And number four, we can apply them practically for the church. They teach us a lot about church life. Almost every problem, difficulty, and challenges facing the church are addressed in these seven letters. Now, historically, Thyatira was the smallest church mentioned with the longest message from the Lord. Prophetically speaking, for some, this might be a bit uncomfortable and sobering because Thyatira represents the church age prophetically when the Roman Catholic Church really became strong. And it runs from 600 A.D. all the way to the end of the church age. It covers a time known as the Dark Ages when the word of God was taken from the people and the people fell under the authority of the popes. Now, for that reason, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before we get into it because we're going to address some bad things that came up within the Catholic Church. 
But let me say this. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the bad things that came out in the Protestant church as well. You know, it, it turned about fair play in the church of Sardis. Now, we're also going to be looking at the good things within these churches because that's what Jesus did. Every church except the church of Laodicea, Jesus had something good to say about them. And it's important to praise uh, the good because it's equally as important to give us a description of the bad so we can get rid of anything that's bad in our own lives. So with that said, Jesus begins his letter to this church, as he did in, in the others, with a description of himself. Look at verse 18. And to the angel, our pastor of this church, and Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Now here, this is the first time in the book of Revelation that Jesus refers himself as the Son of God. Earlier, he described himself as the Son of Man, a phrase borrowed from the book of Daniel. But now Jesus, uh, you know, he's highlighting his authority, his, his deity. Because in this message, he's going to give a message of judgment. So he's reminding everyone of his authority to judge. And sometimes we forget that, that Jesus has the right to judge, to chasten us, to discipline us. But you know, I don't ask my children permission to deal with them. You know, I just deal with them. You know, it's like, hey, you know, can, can I deal with you on this? No, you just do it. In the same way, God judges us. He deals with us in order to root out evil so we would not be destroyed completely. His judgments are to preserve the good and destroy the evil. So Jesus says he has eyes of a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Again, because of Jesus' description of, of himself, judgment is brought into the picture. And, and uh, he has the eyes of Jesus, the, the, the penetrating eyes of Jesus. In other words, I know what's going on here. Think about this. It must have been amazing to, to, to think about, you know, uh, during the Lord's earthly ministry, to, to look into his eyes. I mean, he was a man, but he was also God. And when you looked at, you know, into those eyes, you were looking at God in human form. We also know that when Jesus would look at people, I mean, it was penetrating. You know, he could see right through them. In fact, when he called Matthew the tax collector, we read Jesus looked at him. But a better rendering of that, that verse was that Jesus looked right through him and said, follow me. The thing is that Jesus just, just didn't look at people. He also knew what they were thinking. And often he would express their thoughts and it would completely freak them out. Remember, Jesus would say things like, well, you, you've, you, you know, why do you say in your heart? You know, he knew, you know, in other words, why are you thinking this right now? And they were like, whoa, how does he know? Because he's God. You know, I'm really glad that, that I can't read people's minds. I think it'd be very depressing. You know, you're talking to someone and they're saying, oh, man, I love you so much. You're so great. And then you read their mind. I think you're ugly and I really don't like you. Yeah, I wouldn't like that. But Jesus knew everything that everyone was thinking. and He could see right through people. And we read that his eyes are like a flame of fire that speaks to the purity and the holiness of God. He's described his, his feet like fine brass. And brass is a metal that speaks of judgment. So we, we see the, the judge stepping up for judgment. Now before he gets to that, he brings them, you know, commends the church on what is good and what's going on in the church. And, and if you're taking notes, our, our points, our three points are quite familiar. You know, this is the fourth time we use them. Number one, we're going to see the, the commendation. Number two, the criticism. And number three, the correction. Number one, the commendation. Look at verse 19. It says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. 
He says, I command, command you for the fact that there's work that you're doing that does good work that you're doing that doesn't cease. You, you continue to do good works. And he's commanding them on their motive behind their works, which was, was love. What they did, they did out of love. Now, that's opposite to the church in Ephesus. Remember, we looked at that. That church left its first love. Jesus says, return to it. This church, they still had that love. It reminds me of a story. It's a Valentine's story about a little, little Chad who was a shy, quiet young fellow. One day he came home and told his mother that he would like to make a Valentine for everyone in his, in his class. But her heart sank. Because, you know, she thought, oh, I wish you wouldn't do that. Because she had watched the children walk home from school. And, and her Chad was always behind them. They laughed and hung out together and talked to each other. But Chad was never included. Uh, nevertheless, she decided she would go along with her son. So she purchased the paper and the glue and the crayons. For three whole weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 Valentines. Valentine's Day came and his mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve them up warm and nice with a cool glass of milk when he came home from school. You know, she just knew that he would be disappointed. Maybe that would ease his pain a little bit. It hurt her to think that, they, that he wouldn't get many Valentines, maybe none at all. Well, that afternoon, she had the cookies and the milk on the table. When she heard the children outside, she looked out the window, and sure enough, here they came, laughing and having the best of time. And as always, there was Chad in the rear. He walked a little faster than usual. She fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside. His arms were empty, she noticed. And when the door opened, she choked back the tears. Mommy has some warm cookies and milk for you. But he hardly heard her words. He just marched right on by, his face aglow. And all he could say was, not a one, not a one. Her heart sank. And then he added, I didn't forget a one, not a single one. I love that story because it just shows the love that's there. Jesus is saying to this church, man, I know the love that's there. I know the love that, that you're doing there because of that love. It's outwardly and it's internally. Now, when you walked into this church back then, it was evident people got along. They loved one another. The majority of the members were not at each other's throat. They were, they were on each other's hearts. Jesus said this, by all men, this, by, by, by this all men shall know that you're my disciples and that you have love one for another. Peter wrote, above all things, have fervent love for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So there's love in this church internally as, well, as there was, was also love in the church externally. They reached out to people. They wanted to see people get saved. They wanted people to come to know Jesus Christ. There was no apathy in this church when it came to getting the message out and bringing people to church. Jesus commends them for this. And he also commends them for their service. But the Greek word uh, for, for service is the word diakonia, which speaks of ministry. It speaks of giving attention to certain needs. It's similar to the word deacon. It implies ministry. In this church, there was, there was more than just simply activity going on. There was real, honest-to-goodness ministry happening. Now, there's many churches that can be described as busy churches. They have a lot of activities, but very little in the way of ministry. They just have a bunch of things going on, but not real important, life-changing things. Listen, Jesus is not impressed, nor has he ever been impressed with our activity alone. What Jesus commands and impresses him and blesses him is ministry. Everything that the church does should have ministry as its focus. So we certainly see that in these folks from Thyatira. Their motive and the ministry was love. Their ministries of their works were service. But not only that, their maintaining of their works in verse 19 was through, the, through faith and patience. Jesus says, I know your faith and your patience. That has the idea of faithfulness, of, of fidelity, of loyalty. Most in the church were faithful. They're not 
fickle. They weren't hopping around, you know, from church to church trying to find the next new thing. They were faithful in serving the Lord and the family that God had called them to be a part of. And they were enjoying it. They were involved in that. In fact, that word for patience here means to abide. It describes someone who's, who's settled in, someone who's unmovable, even when the circumstances get rough or relationships are strained. You didn't find a lot of church hopping going on. Now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 3.13 to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And sometimes that can be a tricky thing to do because there are times that, that we don't want to be exhorted. And we can become kind of defensive and kind of, you know, you know, you know relationships can become strained. Because someone may say, man, yeah, I see this going on in your life and, and, and man, I want to help you here. And we can get, kind of get a little thin-skinned. Oh, who are you? I don't want to hear this. I like what Pastor John Corson, he tells a story about the time when he was reading about a lady who grew tired of, of ugly architecture, off-key singing, silly sermonizing, and hypocritical Christians dozing in church. So she stopped going to church for, for 30 years. He says, as I was reading about this woman, she says, my dog Sam plopped himself outside my door. I invited him in where he curled up at my feet, but after five or six minutes, he started scratching. Fleas. I immediately opened the door and cast him into outer darkness. His point is that problems come with people as sure as fleas come with dogs. Sibling rivalries, difficulties, pressures, and tensions are all a part of the process of raising children into mature adults. And that's what this, the father is doing. I look at the, the, these Christians here in the church of Thyatira and it says Jesus is commending them for sticking to it, for being patient with each other, taking care of each other in the body of Christ. Not leaving at the first sign of conflict. Good job, Jesus says. So, the motive for the work was love. The ministry of their work was service. They maintained that attitude of faith and patience throughout. Very commendable. But that's not all. Jesus is not done commending them yet. He commends them on one more thing. The measure of their works. Look at verse 19 towards the end again. He says, the last or more than the first. You catch that? The last or more than the first. Now, one thing that is impressive is that this was a church that was growing and there was more growth in the end than when they started. Now, it's important to, to have a, you know, the good thing is to have a good ending. Sometimes we may not have a very good beginning, you know. Maybe we've thrown away some precious years chasing after silly, silly things, but, but, you know, recently we, we've come to our senses. And here's the good news, you know, get in the race and finish it well. Better to not have a, a great beginning but a great ending than to have a great beginning only to crash and burn in the end. Rather, really, better to have a great beginning and a great ending. So Jesus says to this church, your last is greater than when you began. They were committed, they didn't quit, and they didn't give up. And that's really a good thing. And that should be true of every believer. What great things to be commended for. And if Jesus would stop right there, I'm sure this church would have just been pleased. They would have been thrilled. But... Jesus has it, nevertheless, dun-dun-dun. As we've been seeing in the seven letters to the seven churches, whenever you see a nevertheless, it's not so good. This brings us to point number two, the criticism. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. See, as good as that, all that was that they did, all the work the church entire time was doing was meaningless because they allowed into their life uh, things that were not good. They were drifting off course and now compromises set in. Now the Bible warns us in Hebrews 2.1, for this reason we should pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Listen, the, the, the moment you begin to neglect your, 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 your growth, 
you're going to contribute to your decline. Let me put it a different way. Pastor Greg Glory would put it this way. The Christian walk is like climbing a grease pole. You know, as long as you keep going, you, know, you can make, make, you know, you move. But as soon as you stop, you start sliding back down. See, the moment you begin to neglect your growth, you will contribute to your decline. That's what was happening to this church. They were spiritually sick. Remember the church in Pergamos that was compromising. But this church, they're accepting and listening and tolerating open sin. They were corrupt. And Jesus focuses specifically on the word tolerance with this church. Look again now at verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. That word allow there in verse 20 is also translated tolerate. Uh, the Amplified Bible reads it this way. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, I am sure, and I think you would agree, that, that for the most part, the strong Christians I know, they're very tolerant. You're very tolerant. But let me define tolerance. We have a worldview of tolerance based on our study of scriptures and our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe things are true. And so when we talk to someone who is not a believer, we try to convince them. We try to persuade them. We engage in evangelism. We want them to believe in Jesus like we do. But we all know that people that hear what we have to say, they don't agree with us and they disagree. So what do we do? Do we scream and yell at them? Of course not. You know, do we assault them physically if they don't embrace Christ? No. Do we sue them and try and shut down their business? No way. No, we lovingly say, we disagree with your lifestyle choices you're making. I'm going to pray for you, and I hope you come to your senses one day. So we, in a sense, tolerate that thing. In other words, we accept that though we don't agree with the choice they're making, we cannot change them. We don't harm them or slander them or put them down. That's, that's tolerance. I don't agree with it. I don't believe in it, but I will tolerate. But the tolerance of the world is completely different. They have redefined it. When people tell you to be tolerant today, in effect, they're telling you that you're wrong and you have to accept and agree with what they are doing, no ifs, ands, or buts. And nowadays, if, if you say you don't agree with something, well, they say, well, you have a phobia. And if you stand against something, it's defined as hate speech. Conviction, conviction is called fanaticism. Biblical truths that the churches have believed for centuries is now regarded as, as discrimination and people will come after you even to the point of forcing you to shut down your business because of your Christian convictions. See, they don't just want me to accept it as far as saying, well, I don't agree with it. No, they want me to endorse it. They want you to endorse it. And that's what this church of Thyatira was doing. They were tolerating sin and God said, I'm intolerant of your tolerance. See, tolerance isn't always a good thing in that sense. Jesus says, I'm intolerant of this sin. You're allowing sexual immorality in your ranks. And he mentions Jezebel. Now, I don't know if there was a literal Jezebel that was being referred to here, or he's just using a, a name as a metaphor of wickedness. We do know there was a Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. She was married to King Ahab, probably the most wicked couple in the Old Testament, extremely wicked woman. We know she actually endorsed some 850 false prophets, she was responsible for putting the prophets of the Lord to death. She was, she was teaching that immorality was not a serious issue. She herself died an untimely death being thrown from a, a, a tower or a window and eaten by dogs. Queen Jezebel was a, you know, probably in the words of the great theologian Frank Sinatra, you know, the lady was a tramp. Uh, you know, it, uh, this is the way it was. And so here we find the Lord saying, you're tolerating that Jezebel-like sin. Let me say this. 
also a side note, just because a name is in the Bible, that doesn't mean you should name your child like that, okay? If you have kids, I don't think, you know, Jezebel would be a good name. You know, Delilah, probably not good. Judas, Nimrod, Pharaoh, not good names. But Jesus says, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of this tolerance of sin. Remember, he said in verse 18, he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, to say a church has a Jezebel was saying that the church has entered into idol worship and sexual immorality. Now, for the actual historical church in Thyatira, that was happening. It was a very, Thyatira was a very commercial area. And there were many different trades because of all the merchandisers there. Their claim to fame was actually this purple dye that you used to make designer clothes of the ancient world. They would extract purple dye from a small shellfish. They would cut it open. They would cut the throat from this little shellfish where a little drop of purple would come out. And that's what they would use as a purple dye. You might say their business was really cutthroat and very expensive, by the way. Because it took so much of this purple goo, and only those who were very wealthy, that is those of royalty, wore those purple garments. Now, here was the problem. In order for Christians to find work at that time, they would have to join these trade unions or trade guilds made up of pagans. Now, obviously, because of the influence of the world, their union meetings became very pagan. And there were many pagan practices done during such meetings that involved all kinds of weird sexual activities and idolatry from the Greek world. But in order for them to work, they had to belong to the union. In order to stay in the union, they had to attend the union meetings. So they faced the pressure to participate in the meetings, really the things of the world, the partying, the sexual immorality. So it really became a financial liability to them. So there was this pressure. It wasn't easy for them to live in Thyatira. How far could or should they go as members of these trade guilds? And they're struggling to answer these issues. A woman in the church, perhaps named Jezebel, shows up on the scene, says she receives a prophecy from God and encourages them to fully partake in these sexual immoralities and practices. He says here, to commit sexual immorality and eat the things sacrificed to idols. Jesus is saying, that is wrong. That is wrong. Let's put a stop to that. Now let me say this. That's historically speaking. Let's move prophetically speaking. When the Roman Catholic Church really became strong and led people into spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality. It speaks of the time from the 6th to the 16th century. A thousand year time period has been called the Devil's Millennium or the Dark Ages. A very dark time. It's a time when the church became corrupt by, again, you know, combining pagan rites with Christian teachings. And many of the pagan practices with heathen principles were introduced into the church during this time, but given Christian terminology. That started with the compromises that we looked at last time under the rule of Constantine, but it just got worse. It was during this time, approximately 788 A.D., that idol worship began. The worship of the cross, the worship of images, of relics were introduced into the church and encouraged. It was a time, this time, that, that uh, the religious authorities were lifted up and widely sought after for counsel and direction. The bishop of Rome uh, became into universal acceptance. It was, it was then called the Pope. And he began to exercise dominion over kings and emperors. In fact, the name Thyatira comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual. Or continual sacrifice. Now this describes very clearly what takes place during what they call the sacrifice of the Mass within the Catholic Church. There's a continual sacrifice in the Catholic doctrine. is what's called transubstantiation. That is a word for what is said to take place during communion. They believe, they teach that the bread and the wine literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. 
And at each service, the priest has the authority in the words that he says to make this happen. It's almost like this magic spell. You know, I say these words and poof, you know, it turns into Jesus' body and blood. That's why if you've ever attended a Catholic Mass and watched this going on, you notice the priest ensures that every last uh, drop of that juice is, is, is drunk and all the bread is eaten. Since those elements represent the, the body of Christ, they can't be poured down the drain or thrown out. So they, they think that the continual sacrifice of Christ is really what brings grace and salvation, which is in direct contrast to what Jesus you know, declared from the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. At that point, our sins were paid in full. In fact, Jesus, rather, God's word tells us very clearly in Hebrews 7:27 that Jesus made the complete sacrifice once and for all when he offered up himself. Now, Jesus also brought up the sin of immorality within this church, and sadly, that can be traced back to the popes as well. In fact, the late author Dave Hunt, in his book, A Woman Rides the Beast, points out that the road to becoming pope was, was paved with mistresses. Six of them were put into power by mother and daughter pair of prostitutes. This woman named Theodore of Rome and her daughter Morosia. Theodore was the wife of a, a prominent Roman senator, and she would manipulate Roman politics by exploiting the fact that her daughter uh, Morosia was the mistress of Pope Sergius III. And then Theodora herself was a mistress to two popes and fell in love with a priest from Ravenna that she maneuvered in him into papal throne. So according to this, we know that, that, that it was the prostitutes that determined who the next pope would be. Also during this era, the idea of indulgences were introduced. So if you're going to party on Saturday night, you can buy an indulgence from the priest so that you can be forgiven. And there's many more things we can look at even leading up to today. In fact, I, I read yesterday, uh, it was posted on a friend of mine's Facebook, that, and I looked it up, that the Pope Francis released a, a video clearly expressing his belief that all major religions are different paths to the same God. But there's a picture posted of him meeting with these other religious leaders that I found. He says that while people from various global faiths may be seeking God or meeting God in different ways, that's important to keep in mind that we are all children of God. Look what he says. Now, Jesus was pretty clear that we're not all children of God. That to speaking to the religious leaders of his day, he put it this way. He said in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's a big difference between we all being children of God. Now, of course, this is not the first time that Pope Francis has done something like this. Very early in his papacy, he authorized Islamic prayers and reading from the Koran at the Vatican for the first time ever. Certainly seems as though he's pushing for one world religion that the Bible speaks of will be formed in the last days. Now, please understand me. I, I want you to know I'm not Catholic bashing, as some might suggest. This is the history, and this is where it's led to today. And as I said before, next week we'll, we'll look at the Protestant church's dark history. And remember that Jesus had some really good things to say about this church. And understand the Roman Catholic Church has great humanitarian practices and tremendous programs in helping the poor. Man, they're against abortion. That's awesome. They have great hospitals. The work of the nuns with orphans and unwed mothers, all wonderful things that the Catholic Church has been known for. Mother Teresa was incredible. And there are many wonderful people who really love God in the Catholic Church, but there's also a lot of darkness and there's a lot of corruption. 
And just as this church of Thyatira was called to deal with the sin of this woman, so too the Catholic Church is being called to deal with the sin of, the, of its leadership that has drifted very far away from biblical Christianity. On top of that, look at verse 21. Jesus says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. She did not repent. So Jesus is saying, immorality is taking place in the lives of those who profess to be believers in their church, and they're not repenting of it. You know, the Bible says in Galatians 5.19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Do you hear that? If you live a habitual, immoral lifestyle without repenting, you will not go to heaven. Revelation 22.14 says, Outside of the city are the sorcerers and sexually immoral and mur- murderers, the idol worshippers and all who live a lie, who live to live a lie. Revelation 22.14. There's no exceptions to this. Don't tell me, well, God has spoken to my heart, said it was okay. Now, I've heard that before. People, you know, that come up to me and, you know, they're, they're, they're living together and, 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 you know, they'll say things like, yeah, we, we're having sex outside of marriage, but God told us it's okay. And besides, we're going to get married. Really? How did God tell you that that was okay? Well, he just spoke to our hearts and we just know in our hearts. Well, I don't know who spoke to your heart, but, but it wasn't God. Because <laughs> God will not contradict his word. First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, God will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. And God says to this church, you are letting this sin in your ranks. This is a bad thing. Look at verse 22. It says, indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So this verse seems to be saying, if you continue to live this way, you're going to be left behind at the rapture. And this would fit into the scriptures that warn us that we, as we wait the Lord's return, that we should be watching and we should be ready. In fact, in Luke 12, Jesus speaks of the wicked servant who thinks that his master is delaying, uh, you know, his, his return and begins to beat the other servants partying and getting drunk. And Jesus says uh, that in that story that the master will return and cut that person off. Jesus says in Matthew 24:40, two shall be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Certainly seems to me that, that there's going to be people that will be left behind when the Lord comes for his church. Why? Because of corruption. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. See, this church in Thyatira thought they could live however they want to live and they're still going to go to heaven. Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Get away from me, those who break God's laws. Look at verse 23. Jesus goes on. He says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I'll give to each one of you according to your works. Listen, idolatry, sexual immorality, all it does is bring suffering. We're seeing it in our, in our culture today, in this country presently. The suffering in families, the suffering economically, the suffering with sexually transmitted diseases, it's all going around. These diseases grow in our country and the diseases affect many people's lives. It's a painful thing. But it's a result of sexual promiscuity that many in this country are engaged in. 
Jesus also mentioned the children here that he will strike them uh, with death. Now, he's not meaning the little kids here. What Jesus is saying, and you know, that it will not only be this historical church in Thyatira that will face certain judgment, but her offspring, the church on down through the generations, uh, uh, and the children in that sense, those in the church today. And he reminds them that he will be a fair judge because he sees the minds and the hearts of everyone there. And then the death that's spoken of here, I believe, speaks of the second death that we talked about last time. So Jesus is saying, listen, you need to repent of your ways. Jesus always gives us opportunity to repent. But Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. There's going to come a time that, that the Lord will no longer tolerate blatant, unrepentant sin. When a person's sin is so full that even God in his mercy would be violating his righteousness to wait any longer. Because if you're, if you're in continual sin, you may be thinking, man, yeah, because you haven't been judged, you're, you're never going to get judged. That's wrong. God is long-suffering, but he's also righteous. God is patient, but he's also not going to be mocked. And he gives people time to repent of their sin, to quit that habit, to forsake that sin, and God will forgive you. If you put your faith and trust in him, repent of your ways, God will give you grace. But this woman, as he says, was unwilling to repent. If she would have, God would have given her grace as well. This brings us to our final point, the correction. Look at verses 24 through 29, and we'll close with this. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depth of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as they also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus closes here with a correction, if you will. He says, to those of you who are not giving into the things that he just mentioned, I want to give you this word of encouragement. Now, the things that he just mentioned, you know, the immorality, the idol worship, Jesus calls it the doctrine or the depths of Satan. It's where it originates. But the good news, Jesus says, but, but hold fast in verse 25, what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Now, remember, as we started, Jesus said their motive for the work was love. Their ministry of the work was service. They maintained that attitude of faith and patience throughout. So Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. Hold on to that. But then he says, to him who overcomes. And we looked at that phrase last week. It really is the definition of a true believer. We are overcome, why? By the blood of the Lamb. We, in and of ourselves, we, we can't be overcome. You can't just, oh, I just have this positive attitude. I'm going to be overcome. No. The only way we can overcome sin and death and compromise and worldliness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we know that the victory has been won by Christ through the cross. No other name given among, uh, among men by which man can be saved. It's only through Jesus. And so as we close, the Lord is saying to them and to us, Hey, there's a day coming when you identify with God, you identify with me, and there's going to be glory. So be faithful. Be committed. Hold fast until I come back. Hang in there. And, and, and know this, there's a day coming when Christ is going to come back and he will take us home with him and then we'll come back with him and rule and reign with him in glory. Don't give up. Hold fast to what he's given us. Hold tightly so that God may continue to work on our lives as believers in purity and in holiness so that we, you know, may receive the honor and glory that's due him. 
He's saying that if you're in this place of sin, of sexual immorality, idol worship, it's not too late also. Repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus Christ. That's the message that Jesus has for us, his church today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord, and for your word. And Father, we know there's some heavy words here to this church that were, uh, Lord, they, they were corrupt. They've allowed this sin to come into the church. Lord, we recognize you can't bless a church if there's, if there's sin in a church like that, Lord. You can't bless a person personally, Lord, if they're holding on to secret sin in their lives. And I pray, Father, right now, if there's any sin, Lord, that needs to be confessed in our hearts, that we recognize that we would just come before you this morning and confess and turn from that sin, Lord. And not allow it to hold on to us and, and, and control us, Lord, but we would just give it over, Lord, turn from it and turn to you. Lord, help us to hold fast to the things that we know are true. The love that you have for us, the grace you've given us. Lord, help us to be committed, Lord, to, to, to knowing you more and more each day. Thank you for this time, Lord. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. Of the shadow of death, perfect love.